continue our journey through uh, nuggets of our confession of faith. I say nuggets because this is not an overview. If you recall, if you've been with us, we're looking at phrases in the confession, which may be slightly more challenging to understand, to follow. Maybe sometimes they're the phrases that people say, I'm not sure that I fully agree with that one. In some cases, it's because we may not fully understand what's actually being confessed. In other cases, there's just a disagreement. But these phrases over this Sunday school class are phrases that we're just trying to give you a little bit more information about and then have an opportunity for questions. If you want to look at the paragraph that we're talking about, this is on page 684 in the hymnal there in front of you, the Trinity hymnal. But we are in London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, paragraph 4. And perhaps in the Lord's providence, it lines up with some of the things we've talked about today. But I want to speak with you briefly tonight about that Antichrist. Oftentimes, our confession of faith has a few phrases that are misunderstood. Sometimes, phrases are taken out because of what they may mean. And I want to read to you a paragraph, and that is, again, um, chapter 26 of the London Confession of Faith, paragraph 4. By way of introduction, let me just remind you, and this is going to become very important, we are in the chapter on ecclesiology, the chapter on the church. We are not in a chapter on eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. That's going to be crucially important in a moment. Chapter 26, paragraph 4 reads this way, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. What are we to make of the fact that it seems like the London Baptist Confession of Faith is saying we know who the Antichrist is? For a long time, people have wrestled with this phrase. Some would like to take it out. Some have. In fact, if you pick up a copy of the Sister Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in its Americanized version, this is a phrase that was taken out. The Pope is that Antichrist. What does this mean? Well, as is the case, I do want to point you again to the helpful work of James Renahan to the judicial and impartial reader. It's very helpful. It gives you historical data. But the first thing that I want to say is that when we read the Confession, the doctrines that we believe the Scripture to confess. And, that, and that's important. We shouldn't confess it if we don't think the Scripture teaches it. We should confess something different, right? So when we read these, these are phrases by phrases, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter of doctrines that we believe the Scripture teaches. Does the Scripture actually teach that we know who definitely the Antichrist is? 
Well, I would argue we know a little bit about the so-called Antichrist, but in this chapter, the word or phrase is that Antichrist, and the context is crucial. Notice the first phrase of the paragraph, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. If you say you are the head of the church when Christ is the head of the church, you are anti-Christ. Now, some people have grown up in churches where they were looking for one guy. He was going to be the Antichrist. Others have grown up in churches where there has been the understanding that there would be a spirit of Antichrist, that there is a spirit, if you will, uh, that Satan presses along where throughout various times as history moves on, there are going to be people who rise up and present themselves as being against Christ. Now, this document was written in the 1600s. And in the 1600s, the Protestants were within 100 years of some pretty major stuff, to say the least, right? And a lot of that stuff had to do with the reforming of the church. Remember, the Reformation was just that, a reformation, not a new church, okay? And so as the church was being reformed, one of the things that constantly was of issue was, where is the authority that we're supposed to follow? And who was it, whether it was this guy or that guy, who was it that constantly raised his head up to say, I am the head of the church, but the Pope of Rome? So the writers of our confession are saying, tipping their hat to the context in which they are in, anyone who says that he is the head of the church is that Antichrist. He is Antichrist. He is in that spirit of Antichrist. Let me read a couple of phrases to you from a variety of individuals. Again, I'm taking this from um, the commentary. We do have it on our shelf to the judicial and impartial reader. But a couple of phrases that I think are important for us to understand, and then we'll give a couple of sentences of context and then see what questions you may have. Okay. Uh, Dr. James Renahan says this. I think he's absolutely right. It is in this light that the latter part of this paragraph must be understood. It is not primarily a statement about eschatology, which is frequently how it is viewed, but rather of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, intended as a contrast with the sovereign lordship granted to Christ. Now, in my opinion, I don't think the writers of the confession were trying to label, we know who the end times antichrist is as much as they were trying to say an example of that spirit of Antichrist is found in, of all places, the person in the Vatican who says, I am the head of the church. That is Antichrist. Now, you'll have to pardon the old English, but listen to one writer. This is Andrew Willett in the late 1500s. He says this, quote, So the Pope denieth Christ to be our prophet, king, and priest. His prophetical office he defaceth, and in effect denieth in disgracing the scriptures, saying they are imperfect and contain not all matters necessary to salvation, that their authority bindeth us not without his allowance. His kingly office in making himself Christ's 
vicar and vice regent upon the earth in making new laws, sacraments, ordinances besides Christ's as necessary to salvation as the rules of the gospel. His priesthood in setting up a new propitiatory sacrifice in the abominable mass beside the only sacrifice of atonement upon the cross in making other mediators and intercessors besides Christ and such like whereof we shall have occasion to entreat afterward more at large. Ergo, the Pope, in denying the offices of Christ, denieth Christ, and so is Antichrist. Now that was written in the late 1500s, and that's an important thing to say. One other phrase, and this again is Renahan, he says this, Unlike the Roman interpretations, among the Protestants, Antichrist was not identified as an individual, but as a designation for a system dominated by men. I think this is a helpful thing because a lot of times when we read our confession, it's phrases like we looked at several weeks ago, elect infants, dying in infancy. Or this word recreation on the Sabbath. Or here, the Pope is that Antichrist that we quickly glance over. And when we hear the word Antichrist, I know it was this way for me. When I hear the word Antichrist, I automatically am drawn to eschatology and all the debates of my Christian high school where we were trying to figure out who the Antichrist was and when and the maps and all of those kinds of things. And so when we hear Antichrist, that's what we think. But it's crucially important for us to understand that the confession is simply alerting us to the fact in its doctrine that Christ is the head of the church. Now, why is that important to say? Well, in chapter 26, that's the chapter that we as a church have been in for several weeks, by the way. Chapter 26 has a system. And I want to tell you that system and then see what questions you have. Christ is pictured as the head of the church. He is the one who says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He has authority. He is the head of the church. He then institutes his church by his authority. And what does he do? He institutes his church by giving the church delegated power. We operated this morning some delegated power. Now make no mistake, I'm not saying uh, we took power away from Jesus and we, 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 we did it ourselves. But what is meant is Christ instituted his church and he told the church to do what? Choose from among yourself elders and deacons. The congregation as a whole has chosen some new deacons and a new elder. Now, the work of Christ in the church is to be carried out by those men in those two offices. So, this is, this is called congregationalism, right? Christ's power given to local churches who then delegate, seeking to, as we prayed this morning, according to the mind of Christ, follow his ways, to and trust the ministry to elders and the work of service to deacons so that his congregations can be led and served. And then these congregations seek to submit to these leaders. That's congregationalism. Just quickly, there are two other systems. And then there's the papist system. Many of our brothers and sisters are Presbyterian. They would agree pretty much with everything that we're talking about, except... They govern their churches in this way. The elders of multiple churches make decisions for multiple churches. 
We have, well, we have three elders in our church. Our elders are not pastors of other churches. I don't have eldership in a Baptist church down the street. They may recognize me as a brother from a sister church. They may even say, hey, would you come preach in our pulpit? But I don't have authority. Chad does not have authority. Blake does not have authority over those churches. But in the Presbyterian system, they do. Then lastly, there's the Episcopal system. That is where it is viewed that Christ has given his authority to a select number of individuals called bishops. And those bishops rule the churches. So those are the three systems. But early within Christianity, as is often the case, pride over power got into the way. And you know the history, but if you don't, long story short, after a few hundred years, bishops began to argue about who was the greatest. And the Bishop of Rome began to be viewed as the first among equals. Eventually, the Bishop of Rome became known as the Pope. And through a series of additions, this one came to believe himself to be the head of the church. And we would say, in this we cannot abide. Christ is the head of the church. We may disagree, but lovingly join with our Presbyterian brothers. We may disagree. We may lovingly join in with Anglican churches that are preaching the gospel. We may not agree that bishops is the way to do it, but we can walk together. But we cannot abide when someone says there is another head of the church. And so 400 years ago, the brothers who put this document together mentioned this because when you say that there is a head of a church, namely Christ, that all authority has been given to Christ, and there are others in the church who do not want to reform who are saying, no, it's this guy, it's this man. He sits in Peter's seat. He rules. That is to deny Christ's headship, which is to deny Christ, which is to be in the spirit of anti Christ. So, brothers and sisters, the short version is, I don't think we have to be afraid of this phrase in our confession. I don't think we have to say that we know that should the Lord Jesus come tomorrow, that the Pope who currently is sitting, doing some very strange things, but sitting in the Vatican today, Pope Francis is the only Antichrist, that he is the one secretly pointed to. No, the Protestants were saying, Anytime anyone says that Christ is not the head of the church or that he has delegated the headship of the church to someone else, that's anti-Christ. And that's what that is saying. That's what this paragraph or phrase is saying. Let me see what questions you may have. Again, these are designed to be very short explanations, so feel free to ask questions, um, and uh, we will then take a few moments to engage them, and then uh, we'll pray together and Wait for uh, our little ones. Any questions on this? Yeah. What, what would be the, the Protestant response to a, a Roman Catholic that would say, well, the Pope is just the, the head of the Pope is Christ, and the Pope is, is the head of the church, so you know, he's, not, he's not really the head man. Yeah. Um, I think probably the best answer would be the brother in the 1500s who talked about the three offices of Christ and who says that even, I'm hoping, even though every pope may say Christ is the ultimate head, but I'm head under him, there is a denial of those offices because there is a saying 
uh, in the midst of, of popery, um, there's a saying that we have to have this vicar, this priest, this prophet, right? Um, and so it's, it's essentially a denial of Christ, even if you claim Christ, right? Um, so that's probably the, the first place to go, you know, into lovingly, you know, I, I would not necessarily encourage all of us to go to our Roman Catholic uh, friends and say, you know, you're following the Antichrist, right? I mean, that, that may be warranted in some cases, <laughs> but I think the, the best place to go, and of course, brother, you, you're not saying that, um, but I think the best place to go would be to gently, when they come to us, to say, well, let's talk about who Christ says that he is. He is prophet. Talk about that. He is priest. He is king. What does that look like? And how is it that according to his priestly work, he has done everything? And, you know, kind of go, kind of go that route. Yeah. It's a great question. Very good. What else? Yeah, brother. Um, well, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but there are, of course, three main branches of Christianity historically. There is the East and the West, and then, of course, the West uh, is now in two groups, Protestants and, and the Roman Church. So you've got Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox, or as we sometimes call Eastern Orthodox. What I think the Eastern Orthodox do better than Rome is that the Eastern Orthodox are willing to say there is not one single uh, vicar of Christ in the way that Rome has done, right? Which, by the way, um, I'm I'm borrowing this language from other people. I don't think we have to be afraid of the word Catholic. Um, And I think we're right to constantly say Roman Catholic because we are Catholic with a little c. Some of you came to church tonight and you thought you were at a Baptist church and the preacher just told you you're Catholic. Well, what do we mean by that? When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we mean we're part of the one church, right? The universal church. But when you put Roman Catholic in front of it, we're talking about that church under Rome. So there's a difference then in how the patriarchs of the various Eastern Orthodox traditions view themselves in the way in the, in, that it's different than the way that the Pope would. Yes, I think we would not be inclined to want to give them as much power as they seem to have, but it is different. Um, England is a, is a long, full, 500-year ball of wax. Yes, the current monarch and the monarchs since Henry VIII in the 1500s have called themselves the head of the church. But in many cases, they don't mean what the Pope means because they mean that they, are, that they have a mixing of church and state in certain ways um, and that there is a sort of shared authority there that Rome doesn't mean. Um, I don't know that King Charles III, the current monarch of England, has any sense that he is the head of the church in any other way than a political way. Um, but even if he took that job seriously, and I don't know what's in his heart, uh, I don't believe that he historically would say, I'm the priest that you go through, in essence, to get to Christ's treasury of merit, right? So that's a great question, because other people do use that phrase, right? Um, 
but the, the Pope uses it in a very antichrist way, right? Good. These are great questions. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Good question. Um, I'll try to shorten. I'll try to sh- give a short answer, and then feel free to anyone can can see me after. Um, the first, I believe, document that we have. Well, first of all, the word bishop is a biblical word. Some of our English translations use the word bishop instead of elder. I mean, in one sense, we voted on two bishops today. (laughs) Elder equals bishop equals overseer equals presbyter. It's all different words for the same office. But the first document that we see the word bishop used in a way that sounds like episcopacy, right, that tiered office, is in Ignatius's writings in the late 100s. And he... Uh, uses, he says to individuals that when they get married, they should seek the authority of the bishop. You have Ignatius and Polycarp writing to each other. They're brothers in the faith, in my opinion. They're writing to each other, and they're talking about how to do bishop things. Um, I think, in, in, in my opinion, where bishopness as a, an office over other ministers came into being is as Christianity grew, You started to have multiple churches in a city, and you had one church where there was a pastor or bishop of this church that was sort of helping the either the smaller churches or the newer churches, and you just by tradition started to see him as, well, he's the main pastor in the city of Smyrna or in the city of Ephesus. And you started to see by tradition certain men being given authority over other bishops, and that's where that system developed. But if someone were to say, see, it's in the writings in the late 200s um, or even earlier, I would say, yeah, but what's interesting is even earlier writings that are not the New Testament have congregational themes like the letter of First Clement. I know some of these names you, you, you may or may not have heard of, of um, but First Clement, the letter was written to a church in Corinth. Why? Because the church had thrown out all their elders, their presbyters. And the writer is writing from another church saying, you did the wrong thing. You need to install those elders back, right? And so it's kind of hard to say that episcopacy as we know it today is the way that it always was because that just flies in the face of the evidence. But what doesn't fly in the face of the evidence is that it certainly developed pretty early on. And by Constantine, it kind of became, we're going to pull bishops together, right? That's a very short answer, and I know I'm leaving out a lot of details, but yeah, good. Yeah, brother. Yeah. I would say it this way, it wouldn't be beyond my imagination that you wouldn't 
continue to see the current Roman Catholic Church aligning itself with the godless governments of this world. That's probably how I would see it. Uh, I think you've seen that in the, not you, but we have seen that in the past, and I think we will continue to see it. That you have what looks like a prophet, but that is false. That is aligning itself even with godless governments, right? Which is, let me just say this. We should be praying for Roman Catholic friends to come to Christ if they, if they don't know Christ. If they do know Christ, that they would come into a proper church. But we ought to be concerned when we see Rome, Rome itself moving in a godless direction. When I say godless direction, I mean when I was 12, marching in pro-life kind of rallies or whatever it was, who was often there? Evangelicals and Roman Catholics and some Mormons, right? Now, we were not all brothers and sisters in the faith, but you used to be able to count on this large mass of people, pardon the pun, known as the Roman Catholics, having some kind of view of life, a, view, a proper view of sexuality. You're starting to see that change. And I think that should concern us. Um, what should concern us more is that people understand the gospel. What Rome does doesn't really matter. It's the gospel. But I, I do think we're living in a time where for the first time you're calling, you, you have the Pope of Rome calling into question biblical sexuality and calling into question the issue of abortion, right? They may have been silent on it for years. They may have covered up all kinds of stuff. But their public face was life begins at conception. I'm not sure they're going to say that much longer. Yeah, brother. Correct. Yep. Yeah, good, good question. Good question. Um, um, Matthew 16, let's, let me just read a couple verses. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, a very difficult and godless region, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the king. He goes on. So that's the passage that you are referencing. I think there are a couple things happening there. One of the things is that the location that Jesus is at in Caesarea Philippi is actually a crucial part of this. Because some scholars would make the argument that as he says, the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's actually a, re a part of that region that some scholars believe was called, if memory serves, kind of the, the gates of the underworld, right? And, and we often think, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We often read that as, like, Christ is going to make it so the worst evil of hell is not going to come after us. 
But listen to what Jesus actually says. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades, are not going to prevail. What do gates do? Keep people out. The gates of Hades are not going to prevail against what? This word that Peter has uttered, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? That's who you are. Yes, Peter, upon that rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, or the gates of Hades. Yes, yes. Well, and I would say it's, it's who Christ is and how everyone united to Christ through that word of confession down through the ages will, will be. And, and, of course, we don't want to minimize Peter's role, but to say Peter, Petros, rock, like on you this church is built, I think misses the context of the entire passage there. Yeah, it's good. Good question. Yeah. Yeah, brother. I've been to that location, and the rock right next to the Susquehanna is the gates of hell. This is what it's actually called. The rock is called Petra. Yeah. It's actually what it's called. Yeah. So, gates of hell, Petra. Yeah. No rock. Yeah. And, and that background is very, very helpful to this passage. I mean, you, you could. You could go your whole Christian life and not know that. But if you know that, you see Jesus is actually doing what a masterful teacher does. He's using images right around him to teach a lesson, right? But I think, I think the lesson there, going back to our brother's question, is it's not that the church is built on Peter. It's that Peter has confessed Christ. And that's, that's the interpretive key to this passage. Right? There's, there's more I'm sure we could say and perhaps nuance it in certain ways. But that would be a starting point. What's actually happening in that passage? Of course, you have to remember that with our Roman Catholic friends, um, authority is not Scripture alone. So even if we can win the argument with the text of Scripture, that in many of their minds will not overturn unless the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts. It will not overturn their view that it's Scripture plus the tradition, capital T, Because I want to come back to you and say, we should believe in tradition, apostolic tradition. Like, tradition is not a bad word with a lowercase t, right? It's the big T tradition that they hold on to. The church and scripture together, right? And we would say, no, 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 no. The church is built on and arises out of the scripture, and that's a key distinction. Um, We have time maybe for one or two more before we pray together. Anybody? Yeah, brother, go ahead. Um, I, it, it seems to be uh, a lot more than you here besides the Pope. I think that uh, when you look at what they were coming out of from the early Reformation, it was faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. When the Pope is the vicar of Christ, it is the, he holds the teaching magisterium. Of the church, the all authority of the church. It's not just simply he's in this position. It's if you do not believe and confess what the Pope has declared the Roman Church to be, 
you are outside of salvation. Correct, yeah. And it puts the Pope's word on the same level when he's from the Sea of Rome, right? The, when he's sitting... Ex-Cathedra, yeah. Yeah. His word is equal to the word of God, which is in Christ. It's, that's, you, he can't yeah. Yeah, so it's, it, 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 is, it is the system of which he is the head. Um, it's not just a man, which, of course, is going to vary every time there's a new man. It's, it's that entire uh, system. Um, I think we can get to it, brother. I'll, I'll go quick. Did you have a question, brother? You did not? Okay. Yeah. Not in everything that he says and does but in a specific official capacity when he speaks on the, the, the chair, ex, ex cathedra, um, he, 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 what his words are viewed as um, infallible, essentially. They, they may nuance that you know, in some ways. Um, they may play word games with that. But yes, that is the typical view. Now, does every Roman Catholic believe that? Now, that I... I Probably not. Yeah. 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 Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would say, just to remember as we close, that when we hear the phrase every, well, October 31st, if not more, uh, you know, Scripture alone, we don't mean by that that there are no other helpful words in the history of the church. We don't mean that Scripture is alone. We mean that scripture alone is the final seat of authority, right? So we can read other writers. We can consider other men down through the ages, right? Um, if scripture alone was literalistically scripture alone, then I should just get up here and read Bible verses instead of preach, right? It's everything is tested by the scriptures alone as the ground of all authority, so I think one of the things that's helpful for us is understanding the, the context of that phrase. We don't have to be afraid of it, I don't think. Um, understanding what is meant by it. And it helps us to remember, even as we reflect on it, that the king of the church is the head of the church. And how he orders his church is important. And if disorder rises to the level where someone else says there needs to be a head that we go through to get to Christ, that is what the scripture says the spirit of anti-Christ. Let's pray together. Living God, we pray uh, for perhaps the many Roman Catholic friends that have come to mind as we've had this short discussion. We pray for any who are true believers but are confused, who don't yet realize, they've not grown to the point to realize that they need to find a, uh, a gospel-proclaiming church to join. We pray for them. We pray for the many who are lost in this system under the, the Pope, and they don't have access to the gospel. We thank you for the reformation of your church, and we pray that that reformation of your church would continue, that wherever there is disorder, you would, by your spirit and your word, bring greater order and clarity. 
We pray for the salvation of Roman Catholics. Even as we've seen this week, one so-called conservative bishop removed by the Pope. Lord, we pray that this would be a providential thing that you use to bring some people to true and saving faith in Christ. But we pray that you would help us as we mind the words of our confession to see that even small ones like this, seemingly obscure, are actually helpful in our walk, confessing the truths of your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.